the uh, 1972 Miami Dolphins have a kind of obnoxious tradition. Kind of. Uh, where, well, I think really Chris Berman made it a, a bigger thing by like bringing it up every year that when the last undefeated team uh, loses, finally, that they will pop the champagne to celebrate uh, their streak lasting an extra year. I know we've had some long runs of undefeated seasons of the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years or so in the NFL. This is not an NFL show. It's a college basketball show. So I was thinking and, and chatting with Tom on um, Friday night about how, you know, Tom, for one, picked four ACC teams to make the Final Four, and I picked a different ACC team to make the Final Four in my, uh, in my bracket. Um, and, and the Big East in 1985 set a record for having three teams in the Final Four from the same conference when uh, Villanova won over Georgetown and St. John's also made it, losing to Georgetown in the Final Four. And so I was thinking it should be a, tra- a tradition for when the last conference can't get as many as three teams in the Final Four, the, the kind of 85 Big East teams like Ed Pinckney and Chris Mullen and, um, and uh, I guess Jay Wright, I, I don't know if he was there or not, probably not there, but uh, someone from Villanova, uh, Raleigh Masmino is, is, uh, is deceased, but um, Dwayne McLean and um, I already said Ed Pinckney. Uh, Georgetown people, the John Thompson and um, Patrick Ewing, et cetera, can all like kind of pop like a digital cork and post online about um, the last conference that was able to, uh, that had a chance to get three Final Four teams that didn't. And that moment happened on Friday night this year. This is like, this is like the closest uh, conference, other than the Big East actually, has come, t- I think, of late to, to doing that. Um, the Big East, of course, had three Elite Eight teams um, in... Uh, in one of the years, I remember they got UConn. Yeah, they got UConn and Villanova in, but then Louisville lost to Michigan State. They had a chance to get a third Final Four team in that year. Um, but this year, North Carolina lost to Auburn in a game where I guess everyone in the state of North Carolina had the flu. I don't know what was happening, but Pretty Auburn good. made 17 three-pointers and blew out a North Carolina surprising result, and that eliminated uh, the last chance for the ACC to get a third um, Final Four team. Uh, Virginia clinched it the next day, and then Duke did not the following day. But uh, the Big East streak has now lasted 34 straight seasons, and um, we'll see if any team can match the Big East three Final Fours. What do you think, Tom? That's going to be tough. you got to get the teams in the right spots in the bracket, and then you got to have three really good teams. It's really hard to make the Final Four. Just ask Tony Bennett. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we're not... Or John breath. Chaney. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't hold my breath. Mm-hmm. the rest of the way. Double two, bonus as that's well. Right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 24 of the Double Bonus Podcast. Along with Brendan Drosher, I'm Tom Borstein. This could be our best episode yet, uh, because it will be rated accordingly on iTunes. Give us five stars or better, as Brendan likes to say. We have a big show today. There were, let's see here. There were uh, 15 games. No, no, no. 11 games. 12 games. 12 games. Nailed it. 12 games. 12 teams eliminated. There must be 12 games and a single eliminated. This might not end up being our best show yet, but we're we're working our way into it. Well, we weren't counting the CBI. Uh, 12 games this past weekend or so, weekend plus. There are now four teams left. The final four 
And uh, there were, it was a great Elite Eight round and a very good Sweet 16 round as well. Uh, we'll talk all about that and we'll preview the Final Four, which is next Saturday, uh, or this coming Saturday, which is also the next Saturday, uh, on uh, starting at 6.09 p.m. Eastern Time. So big matchups, Brendan. Uh, what was your favorite moment of the uh, weekend, besides North Carolina losing? Um, I would say my favorite moment of the weekend was just anticipating tonight's matchup between DePaul and Safe South Florida in the CBI <laughs> final. That's a, a best of three series, as you may recall, in the CBI. Two of the most storied Big East programs in recent memory. The DePaul Blue Demons uh, are playing South Florida. You know, they both have had kind of decent years, but neither one's in the top 100 in Ken Palm. But nonetheless, it's on ESPNU. It started like an hour ago. Let's, let's get a live score update. Because, uh, you know, most people listening to this podcast will not know what happened in this game. So this is literally probably the first they've heard about it. So I don't, I don't, I don't feel bad spoiling it if you're, uh, if you're recording it. Um, and let's take a look. Yeah, we got, uh, ooh, so it's halftime. South Florida 31, DePaul 25 at the Yingling Center in Tampa. But uh, besides Whoa. that, yeah. Besides South Florida that, now up to 106 in Kenton, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And they're one of the biggest risers of the season. Um, you know, I, I know that when you tune in for a review of the greatest Elite Eight in the history of the NCAA tournament, what you want to do is spend the first 10 minutes of the show talking about 1985 Big East and South Florida basketball. But former former Georgia Tech and Dayton coach uh, Brian Gregory has actually had a great season. They started 287th in Ken Palm, and they're now 106th, uh, one of the uh, big turnarounds in college basketball. And um and they have three more lovely games coming up with DePaul. Uh, first is home to DePaul tonight, and then at DePaul on Wednesday, and if necessary, Friday night, April 5th, on the 11th anniversary of my wedding, I will not be watching <laughs> DePaul host South Florida in the winner-take-all CBI final. But enough about that. My actual favorite moment, you know, is, is, it's, it's very, like, middle-brow. It it's the shot that went in from Giacchite from the pass from Kihei. I was sitting in, um, I actually missed a lot of the games on Saturday and Friday due to being at the retreat. I, um, I saw the first half of the George Gonzaga-Texas Tech game. I saw like the first most of the first window of the games on Friday, but I, was, I missed most of the Virginia-Purdue game, and I was getting messages from people about Carson Edwards and what he was doing. I saw the score. It was pretty close. And at about five minutes to go, I got in front of a television to watch the finish in my hotel room. Uh, my wife, Teresa, who, um, is a pretty good sport about sports. Um, she, uh, does not like basketball. She, she likes other sports, but track and like, field. She, she pretty much refuses to go to, yeah, track and field. Um, she pretty much refuses to go to basketball games with me. I mean, part of it is, uh, I used to be worse. I'm still pretty bad. I, I don't react well to, uh, to Providence <laughs> College not playing well. It's, uh. <laughs> It's um you know I might have I was on the floor several times when they lost a double overtime game to Georgetown in January, which is fairly recent. It's only a couple months ago, so you know it's very stressful for her to watch, especially Providence with me. And I think also she didn't grow up watching basketball, so she um, doesn't really anticipate or understand very well like the kind of things that are going off the ball in the, the different screens and movements. And so a lot of it seems like a little bit random. Um, and when I'm noticing things, she'll, she won't see it. So she doesn't really like the sport very much. Uh, but she was, you know, we're, it's a hotel room. It's not like we have seven rooms, you know. We, uh, we're in the same bed, a king-size bed, watching the game around 11 o'clock. And then the play happens. Mamadi Jaquite uh, flicks the ball out towards half court, past half court. Kihei Clark, the freshman, gets it. 
And I'm thinking, oh, they got the rebound, but they're not going to have a futile attempt to win it, and that'll be it. But then he finds Rikite, the ball goes in, and I kind of do a yelp, like a very loud yell in my hotel room. And, and Teresa got very upset with me. <laughs> and and I, she said, people are trying to sleep. And I said, I don't care. That was one of the most incredible plays I've ever seen. I will keep yelling <laughs> because that was a ridiculous was, play. Was, were you saying, I will keep yelling in a raised voice, or was that in a hushed voice? You saying I will um, keep yelling, or you were saying I will keep yelling? Uh, it was kind of in between those two. It okay. was it was in, it was in between hushed and um, you know outdoor voice. It was like it was like kind of like I'm talking right now. I think it was okay. not super loud, but it was definitely not hushed. I wasn't like I will keep yelling, but um, yeah, I, she wasn't that pleased uh, in general with, with that. But um, but I think she understands now how I made her watch the play several times. And, uh, it was an amazing play. Yeah, Here's so that my was question. my favorite moment of the weekend. Do you think John Rothstein called his parents before, between the end of regulation and the start of overtime that game? Uh, poor John Rothstein. <laughs> <laughs> the man breaks news involving like a friend of mine that I didn't even know about uh, after we spent six minutes making fun of him for talking to his mm. parents. Like, yeah. it, If you put it in that context, it does feel a little bit heartless, yeah. but at the same time, Okay, let's move on. Right. Yeah. No, so we'll go back to your favorite moment, but what we should start, yeah. we're going to go in chronological order of how the regions were decided. So that means the West comes first. Mm-hmm, Texas mm-hmm. Tech is going to their first Final Four in school history, three years after Chris Beard took over. And they beat Michigan in one of the worst games. Uh, aesthetically pleasing. Not, You'll see. Uh, Michigan had the, the late window on Thursday night was a hard was as oh, you would say a hard watch. It was a hard watch. It was a not very many points per possession. If you like points per possession or points, period, <laughs> just, just go to sleep. Which I confess I did, especially after that Purdue Tennessee game. That game went overtime, forced the Louisville game to be much like a ten thirty five tip. Where it's the tip, as as you would say. Yeah. Meanwhile, the uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Anaheim region's tipping off at 4:09, like uh, Pacific time. They had they had the total times wrong for these games just by dumb luck. But anyway, um, uh, Michigan State shut down. Te- uh, sorry, Texas Tech shut down Michigan in that game. Really put the vice on. And then against Gonzaga, they played a great regional final. It was a back and forth first half, but then Texas Tech's done what they've done so many times this tournament. Just came out much better in the second half. Made some adjustments and really shut down. Uh, Clark and Hachimura for Gonzaga, and it was uh, a well-deserved trip to the Final Four for a Texas Tech team uh, that had a little hiccup in the middle of the season but came out of the second-toughest conference probably in the country, maybe the third at worst, and is going to their first Final Four. Yeah, the this is a matchup, the original final, of the two teams that I was much higher on than Tom this year. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Gonzaga was number one in my final top 25. I, I was rooting for them more than any other team. Uh, you know, in the evening session at the retreat while we were talking about Ezekiel 37. It was a great talk by uh, by one of our pastors. Uh, I did have the live score up on my phone, hoping that Gonzaga would come back. They seem to be always just a possession behind throughout the second half. Um, Texas, in the first half, you know, Gonzaga seemed to have a chance to open up a little bit of a gap, but there was one stretch that I recall, and I think I have it right. I, the TV was kind of far away, but I think there were four straight possessions where there were three turnovers by Rui Hachimura. Might, one might have been by another player because it was a tough pass to catch. And then the fourth possession, he airballed a three. That's how I, I remember. Um, now, Brandon Clark ended up with six turnovers, uh, but he still had a better game than Hachimura. 
who was just way overly aggressive, um, ended up with a 89-0 rating because he missed. Uh, he took 19 shots uh, and 10 free throws, but only managed to score 22 points um, while having no assist either. So, it. So and then if you jump back to the Michigan Texas Tech game, of course I talked about that game last week. We previewed that game between the two best defensive teams in the country. It, and my one of my worries was, well, against, against a great defensive team, you might want to not be sort of reliant on one player, meaning Jarrett Culver. As it turned out, it was probably, I mean, Jarrett Culver, uh, he ended up with a 39 usage in that game and was quite effective, despite missing all five threes he took. But Michigan just had no one to go to. Like, their go-to guys ended up being Charles Matthews and Ignace Bradzikis, and Matthews was terrible. Um, he had five turnovers. Um, and he missed uh, six of his nine field goal attempts, and Michigan had a .71 points per possession. Um, Texas Tech's defense is just it's the best in the country, and then we have the best defense because of his offense in the regional final. Um, Texas Tech defense is what they do. They, they refuse to allow you to get to the middle of the floor. And so if, if you run a motion offense or some kind of offense that tries to get the ball in the middle of the floor, they will find ways to force you to the sideline and baseline. And it forces you to make some difficult passes and difficult decisions when you're also being surrounded by two really permanent defenders, meaning the, the sideline and the baseline. And it requires you to be a very good passing team. Um, and Xavier Simpson only had one assist in Michigan's loss to Texas Tech, despite being a, you know, a quite solid point guard. And then against Gonzaga, for Gonzaga, Josh Perkins did have six assists, and Zach Norvell had four, so they did a little bit better job. It's a better offense, clearly, than Michigan. But ultimately, uh, they were unable to... Uh, find a way to get good shots, and then when they got them, they didn't make them, missing uh, 73% of the three-pointers. Yeah, and the other thing I want to touch on with Gonzaga in the regional final is they obviously were a great offensive team. Their defense, I thought, was a little suspect. But I think what they really lost this game is where they scored, what was it, 37 points in the first half? That is totally fine against Texas Tech, but they mm-hmm. should not have been giving up. Uh, they were only up, what, two at the half? Mm-hmm. At 37-35, and that's a problem. Like Texas Tech is is fine offensively, and they made strides, but you have to take advantage. If you score 37 points in a half against Texas Tech, that is an amazing accomplishment. And if you told Mark Few he'd score 37 points and only be up two points, he'd wonder what the hell happened. And that's basically uh, it was just a momentum killer for them because they know that you probably weren't going to score 37 in the second half after Texas Tech made the adjustments and Texas Tech just put the put the clamps on. It was, what, a 20, no, 32-point second half for uh, Gonzaga. Yeah, and the last 10 possessions of the first half, and, and you know, you look towards other segments of the game, usually in a close game, to determine who, uh, what the key moments were. But with five minutes left in the first half, it was tied at 31. Um, and in the last five minutes, there were 10 possessions for Texas Tech, and they scored just four points. And you think Gonzaga, being a good offense, would at least score 10, 11, 12 points in, those, in their 10 possessions. But instead, they scored just six points. And that uh, inability to pull away, and that was the stretch where Hachimura really imploded. Uh, probably was the key stretch of the game. They could have gone in, instead of it being 39-37, it could have easily been like 45-37, and then it's a little bit tougher to come back. Um, Texas Tech immediately scored to start the second half and ended up taking the lead, um, I guess, with about 11 minutes left in the game and didn't relinquish it after going up 51-50 with 11 minutes left in the game. Um, you know, Chris Beard, just in... in I think it's a, also quite difficult to prepare for Chris Beard after like, just one day of rest because... Gonzaga clearly couldn't have prepared, like pre-prepared for Texas Tech, knowing they had a tough matchup in Florida State. Um, 
and having lost to Florida State last year in the regional semifinals. So having only 48 hours or less, really, to prepare for Texas Tech um, and what they do on defense uh, is particularly challenging. Uh, Texas Tech's uh, defense forces a lot of turnovers, um, and they force you into tough shots, and that combination is why they're, theirs is the best defense in the country. I think some people said, and I agree with that if they said it, is that Gonzaga had the toughest road for a one seed starting this Sweet 16. Having to go through Florida State and the winner of Texas Tech, Michigan, I believe was the toughest road to the Final Four, and they were one of three number one seeds that didn't, it didn't make it through. Uh, you can certainly make a case Duke's road was pretty tough, having Virginia Tech in the Sweet 16 and then Michigan State in the regional final. Uh, the other mm-hmm. thing I want to point about this game is it was the start of a trend. Uh, if you were to ask you know, like the regular college basketball fans, which team do you want to see in the Final Four, the answer for this game would have been Gonzaga, not Texas Tech. I think they're more aesthetically pleasing, and I think they're more kind of more of a household name for basketball. And I think as we'll go through the rest of these regional finals, you may disagree, but I think three of the four went against like the mainstream appeal for the teams. I think it's still a very intriguing Final Four. You have some good teams, obviously. And Texas Tech deserves to be in the Final Four by all means. They're fifth in Ken Palm now. They're the best defensive team in the country. I just think that uh, when it comes to the, you know, the star power of Clark and Ichimura and in general and just the name brand of Gonzaga and that they've been in the Final Four before, this was the start of uh, the team. The matchup's going the wrong way, you might say, for some people. I definitely agree with that. I, I mean, you made the case it's four out of four. I'm not sure which one you had going the other way, but you can make the case that Kentucky and Purdue are more uh, attractive. Uh, not maybe not in terms of storylines, but in terms of like aesthetics. Um, you know, Auburn obviously on the one hand, Auburn aesthetically is interesting because of the turnovers and threes, but Kentucky's the big brand name with the stars. And then with Virginia, Purdue, a lot of people hate watching Virginia play, and Purdue has a big star, and they. True. The one I was going to say was Virginia just because of what happened last year. I think that there's a lot of appeal following them into this Final Four, but as far as the on-court basketball product, obviously that's a turnoff to a lot of people. But yeah, mm-hmm. certainly three out of uh, four, if not four. Yeah, I mean, the, the last thing I want to touch on here is, um, you know, their supporting cast for Texas Tech. Jerry Culver did not have a great uh, game. He, he missed, he made five of his 19 field goal attempts. He had more turnovers than assists. He was, but he the fact that he, he sucked up so many possessions just gave his teammates wide open looks. And the rest of the team was seven for fifteen on threes. The rest of the team was thirteen for twenty one on twos. Um, Matt Mooney had a big game. He had seventeen points. Um, Davide Moretti had a couple big threes. He didn't have that efficient a game, um, especially with the four turnovers. Uh, but then Tariq Owens, Narenz, uh Odiase, and even uh, Kyler Edwards had uh, efficient, low-possession games to uh, goose Texas Tech's offensive efficiency over one point per possession um, and enable them to, to pull out a win, which, you know, in the light of the fact that we had two overtime games and a one-point game, um, seems maybe to make this game a little bit underrated, but, um, but the game was, it was a pretty good game, pretty close most of the way. Yeah, just by the weekend standards, it was not that great, but it was the first half was very entertaining, back and forth, well played, well executed, except for Gonzaga's few hiccups at the end, um, and it was a yeah good good appetizer for what came next. And then we'll go to the South, where Virginia finally makes it to the Final Four under Tony Bennett. That's the headline, but the story is a lot more complicated than that. They took a miracle play that Brennan talked about. Uh, Diakete tying shot at the buzzer to force overtime, then they were in control for... Uh, actually, no, they weren't in control for most of overtime. They trailed it in the last minute of overtime. It was a back-and-forth overtime, uh, and Tony Bennett's team is not fatally flawed. 
They make the final four. Carson Edwards went off, hit, what, 10 threes in this game? Yeah, 10 threes, 42 uh, points. Unbelievable game from him. Uh, and the, the ending play, I was watching this game on my phone at a party where a lot of people who worked for the United Nations were. And needless to mm. say, there were not that many basketball fans in mm. the United Nations crowd. So I was watching on my phone with no sound, which we'll get to in a second. Um, You're talking about Matt Harms? Matt Harms and Mamadi Jakite. These are not... Uh, yeah, Jack not, Saul also is from Australia, I believe. Yeah, um, It was amazing. This is an amazing game. Uh, yeah, and Virginia... New Zealand. New Zealand, sorry. Auckland. Both, both considered down under, I believe, technically. <laughs> Should just go with down under. Then you're wrong. You're right. Uh, but yeah, crazy game. Uh, Virginia comes out on top. A gut-wrenching loss for Purdue to be up three and foul up three and then have him... Uh, intentionally missed the free throw and have the ball deflected to the backcourt. You think you're probably going to the Final Four, and there's a miracle shot, at the, a miracle pass, and a miracle shot at the buzzer. Uh, I just don't know how Clark decided to throw. Let's just start there. Why, how did Clark know to throw that pass? Like, that is the unbelievable decision to make. Like, most people just throw it up. You see people are so nervous the game's going to end, they shoot desperation threes with, like, two seconds on the clock. They they're too scared to even dribble toward the front court. And this, and this guy's passing the ball into the front court, and it has to be perfect. I, Kia Clark has really had an incredible NCAA tournament. Really, down the stretch, it's the exception of the Gardner Webb game where he wasn't very good. He's always, he's been a low possession, um, like high efficiency player, and not even high efficiency, but just like a kind of a ball handler, caretaker, uh, making the right plays, getting a lot of assists. Uh, his number one comp, actually, statistically for this season as a freshman, is Tyler Ulis who is, of course, the freshman point guard on the Kentucky team that went to the Final Four and was undefeated before losing to Wisconsin. Um, and that means he's like a, a really good passer, uh, not a great shooter. Uh, he's only 37% on two-pointers, 32.5% on three-pointers. But he did have three three-pointers against Oregon, uh, 12 points, which tied his career high, which he had previously set against Notre Dame back in January. He had five assists and six assists in his last two games. The 11 assists combined are more than he had in any two games combined this season. Um, so he was clearly playing his best basketball. Um, and so the fact that he, you know, it reminds me of that uh, um, Winning Time documentary, The 30 for 30, where they talked about uh, Reggie Miller um, getting the steal and then jumping behind the three-point line to take the three-pointer to tie the game against uh, the Knicks in whatever game that was, game three, I guess, or game one. I think it was game one of the, Eastern Conference semifinals, um, and it showed like every guy they interviewed, like it was like a, a Larry Brown, and it was Peter Vesey, and it was like Ahmad Rashad, all saying the presence of mind, had the presence of mind to like not shoot the two, but then jump on the three point line and shoot the three. And I thought like that's what they could say about Kihei Clark to have the presence of mind to like not throw up a desperation three, or not even to pass it to Kyle Guy for a desperation three but to be able to see the floor and look ahead and throw a pass, and it had to be a hard pass. You know, you feel like there are probably some arms in, his, in generally in his face. He can't lob that pass, though, and get it there in time. He threw it on the money, and Giaquite hit, Giaquite hit the shot. Um, it's been a breakout tournament for Giaquite, too, uh, if we're talking about breakout players. The complimentary, this is, this is the difference between uh, Kentucky and Duke, who lost, as opposed to uh, Virginia, who won as, as high seeds is that Virginia got very good play in the, in the big games of the tournament from complimentary players like Kihei Clark and Mamadi Jakite, and Kentucky got almost nothing. Uh, Kentucky and Duke got almost nothing from their complimentary players. 
Jaquite, in the four games of the tournament, has scored 26, 22, 12, and 15. That's totally wrong. That was the wrong stat category. <laughs> he has scored 17, 14, 7, and 14. Still good. <laughs> yeah, still good. Especially when his, his uh, he had not had a back-to-back, um, four, uh, he had back-to-back uh, double-figure games once all season, and that was 11 and 10. Um, and he's done it with high, high efficiency. His O ratings have been 129, 135, 113, and 140, and he's gotten a lot of rebounds, and he's had nine blocks and three steals in the last three games. Four blocks on uh, Saturday. Yeah, he has been been great, and Virginia just had everyone plays plays well, and uh, they even took uh, Hunter didn't even play that many minutes. They they kind of went super big down the stretch, weren't really relying on him too much. Uh, played a slightly different lineup and still were able to come away with this. So I have a major, major bone to pick with that. By the way, I was messaging with uh, with listener Lucas during this, and uh, I mean honestly, if Virginia lost the game, which really they should have lost the game, yeah. at least at least when you're down three in that situation. Uh, first of all, I thought Ty Jerome should have pulled up for three when they got the first ball screen. He had Matt Harms on him, but he, he pulled it out instead and then got fouled when he had. They had to make the two free throws. Apparently, he, the second free throw he did not miss intentionally. He said he just short-armed it, which is strange. I don't know why he wouldn't miss it intentionally. But regardless, um, having Jack Salt, and as much as I, you know, I just said, Kihei Clark and Mamadou Giacite are have had great tournaments. But having those two very low-usage players that cannot create their own shots in general, along with Jack Salt on the floor, put way too much pressure on Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome. And... Virginia's offense was in really rough shape down the stretch. They finally were starting to slow down Carson Edwards, and they couldn't score themselves. And some would say, well, if they had had a Hunter in there instead of Salt, maybe Harms like destroys Diakite, and then they don't end up stopping Virginia down the stretch. But um, I think that – I just thought it was – Deanna just can take the ball off the dribble. He can rebound. He can defend inside. Um, and they started the overtime without Hunter on the floor. Then he finally brought him in, and Hunter, he had a turnover out of a strip by Carson Edwards I thought was a foul, but he also made a couple of nice plays and scored some big baskets. Um, I really, if they had lost that game, I think not playing her down the stretch would have been the story of that game, and the fact that they came back, no one really has even well, talked about it. If they lost that game, Carson Edwards would have been the story of the game, and then maybe from a That's Virginia true. perspective, DeAndre Hunter would have the story, but the guy scores 42 points in a regional Fair final, enough. shoots Fair 10 enough. of 19 from three. I think he, I hope he's going to be the story. He was Arguably the story anyway, uh, even in a loss. Um, a couple of things about Purdue. One, has any team ever played two better games back-to-back in the NCAA tournament to Purdue in the regional semifinal against Tennessee, which they mm. won in overtime after blowing an 18-point lead in regulation, and then played, and then they come back and play Virginia in this another overtime game, um, and losing this game, a game they could have won. They were up three, as we said. And also, by the way, and yeah, just Purdue, like Carson Edwards, amazing. Uh, Ryan Klein, you could argue his shoot. Which shooting performance is better, Carson Edwards in the regional uh, final or Ryan Klein with these ridiculous threes? The degree of difficulty on those threes against Tennessee in the uh, regional semis on Thursday night were in, was insane. So I don't know. These those two guards played really well, and it's a shame that they're going home. But Purdue really played like those are two amazing basketball games they played, and they split them. Um, when I think of back to back dramatic games. I think of Michigan in the 89 NCAA tournament when they beat, uh, on a last second shot, beat Illinois in the semifinals, and then they had the controversial foul um, called against um, Seton Hall that sent Ramil Robinson to the line, and he hit those free throws at the, at the end of the game. Um, that comes to mind. Arizona had a really great run in 97, but they had 
overtime games in the regional finals and the national championship game, they didn't have them back-to-back. Um, so, I, yeah, I think Gonzaga in their first run had a couple, but there's none that come to mind that were clearly this good, with the exception of that Michigan Final Four, which I it, they weren't overtime games won. Um, and neither one of them had actually as dramatic a play. Like, you could say, like, the missed three-pointer by Terry Mills that turned into a putback um, by the, the – Higgins was the guy's name on, um, on Michigan to put it back in, was a play. And then Ramey Robinson foul. That's not really that dramatic compared to what Kihei Clark did. Um, but, yeah, uh, Purdue still hasn't gone to the Final Four since 1980. I was, I was ready to pull out my 1980 Purdue nuggets, but um, – I thought oh. you were going to say T-shirt. I was like, where is this going? <laughs> so uh, Left on the cutting room floor. By the way, before you go to the Nuggets, Carson Edwards was fouled. You cannot jump in the air, throw your hip into a guy, even after he releases the ball, and expect to get away with it. Monte Turner. Hmm. It prevents, by calling that foul, it prevents defenders from just being super aggressive and putting shooters in dangerous positions. It's a foul. The referees are going to give you the benefit of the doubt at the end of the games because they don't want to involve themselves in the decision and how the game's decided. He bumped him. It's a foul. I'm sorry. I know people are like, oh, well, it wasn't a foul. It wasn't even close to a foul. Or how can you call that there? It was a foul. I'm sorry. It was not the worst contact you'll ever see, but it was still a foul. 1980 Purdue had Joe Barry Carroll, who, who people remember because he was traded, I think, for Kevin McHale, I think, later. Um... And it was coached by Lee Rose. So Lee Rose is an interesting guy. Um, Lee Rose, first of all, he started his um, – he was once an administrator and coach at Transylvania University. I believe he replaced uh, C.M. Newton there. C.M. Newton, of course, was later the coach at uh, Alabama and uh, at Vanderbilt and was the athletic director at Kentucky who hired Rick Pitino. Um, check out his SEC story on C.M. Newton, by the way. Um, so he was the coach at Purdue for – Two seasons. He came from University of Charlotte, uh, NC, NC Charlotte, where he went to the actually the Final Four at UNC Charlotte. In his second season at UNC Charlotte, he went to the Final Four. In his second season at Purdue, he went to the Final Four. Then he left Purdue um, after that year to take the job at South Florida, and he never went to the Final Four or the NCAA tournament again um, in his next six years before uh, ending his career as a coach and I think uh, he was an assistant later with the Spurs, Nets, Bucks, Hornets, and Bobcats. Uh, apparently, he didn't really like recruiting, and apparently, he didn't like kind of the whining and dining that college basketball, big behind college basketball coaches do. So, he made the strange move to go from basically a marquee program in Purdue to the Final Four, and they haven't been back since, despite so many elite aids. And then he went to South Florida, and then he became an assistant coach in the NBA, including fairly recently with the Charlotte Bobcats in 2008. Uh, but anyway, that's my. He's still alive, eighty-two years old. Lee Rose, uh, an interesting, interesting character in Purdue history. Joe Barry uh, Carroll, yeah. yeah. Sorry, he was traded for uh, Kevin. Or the his the, the draft pick deal ended up being. Uh, he was involved in that trade, and who he is the second leading scorer in Purdue history according to Wikipedia. Do you know who the first person is? Uh, the leading scorer in Purdue history. Yeah. Oh, uh, Rick Mount. Correct. Good job. Yes. Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, so, do we want to talk a little bit about the uh, the Brian Anderson call since he had an interesting yes. quote about this? You want to set it up for us? Yeah. So basically, uh, Virginia is shooting those free throws down two with whatever three seconds left. Um, the tip is 
the, he misses the free throw on purpose or not. It's deflected into the backcourt. So obviously a shot from the backcourt would win the game. But Clark passes it into Diakite for the two. And as Diakite shoots the shot, Anderson says for the win, even though it's a two and it was 70 to 68. So it just was for the tie. And then it goes in. And so as the ball is in the air, the first true buzzer beat of the tournament, you hear the announcer going for the win. And then it goes in and then he immediately corrects himself for the tie. And so, of course, this is a major gaffe for an announcer. That's a hard job, obviously. Uh, and to Brian Anderson's credit, he has been making the rounds or being asked questions about this today, both by Richard Deitch of The Athletic and also Andrew Marchand of The New York Post. They also got him on the phone, it seems. And the quote is basically the same. I'm going to read the one from The Athletic. But the gaffe, in the context of my trade, it's a non-negotiable. I can't make that mistake. There is no excuse. I did not serve the viewers well on that play. It's embarrassing. I deserve the criticism. The lesson, I have to stay in the moment. The end game, going off air sequence, is always a challenge on TV. Mentally, I left the moment to prepare for that sequence. Then the unexpected happened on the floor, and I whiffed. So, yeah, I kind of respect that quote. I feel bad for Purdue players, and I feel bad for Brian Anderson for, like, you know, it's a signature moment. He's called some big games. He called Kentucky-Notre Dame in 2015. He's called some big MLB playoff games. He called Game 7 of the League Championship Series last year between the Brewers and the Dodgers. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what other big basketball games he's called. But I think Kentucky-Notre Dame was probably his biggest until Saturday, and he messed up, and he feels really bad about it. But he, if you read the article, he also says he's, he has, like, a therapeutic way of, like, moving on with his life, which is good. But that's a very frustrating moment, I'm sure, for him. Yeah, I... Um... I like Brian Anderson, especially as an MLB announcer. Um, I think sometimes college basketball games can be quite frantic, uh, especially compared to the NBA and baseball. Um, the crowd, especially the crowd there, was uh, heavily Purdue, was very loud. Um, he had some interesting – I both on Thursday and Saturday, there were several times where – and I know you're at the floor level. I've never been, uh, uh, broadcast – I never broadcast a game. I've done PA, but I never broadcast a game. But I've sat at that level in basketball, and, and sometimes it's hard to see and hard to tell what's going on. From the, especially when you're used to, at least I'm so used to watching games from the high center camera, you can pretty much tell immediately a lot of times by looking at the ref or just seeing how the play goes and how the players uh, react. Like, is that a foul? Is it out of bounds? Is it a timeout? Like, what? Like, you can kind of you, you can intuit what the play was, even if you don't know for sure what the call was. But Brian. Anderson, uh, he he whiffed on a few of those. Like he, a few times, he said, "Oh, it's a timeout," or or timeout, and then he's like, "Wait, no, um, it's a foul." There, there was a few of those type of plays that he had too. Maybe also that the, the Yum Center, which I think is where those games were, the camera, the um, the position was a little bit awkward for him. Uh, I don't know, but um, but I think it was. It just it was a, it was a kind of a tough weekend and had a tough uh, tough climax for him as well. Obviously, yeah, I will say it's a lot easier to know what's going on in a basketball game when you see you can see all three officials you can see other people react to the officials which is really important all at once like if you're a, if you're a play-by-play announcer you're watch i presume you're watching the ball most of the time so you're not seeing like oh this guy like put his hand on his head like express exasperation with the call and referees you know they have distinctive whistles and they have distinctive hand motions uh for certain calls like if you're multiple tweets it's not going to be a foul on the defense it's going to be their turnover an offensive foul or some sort of uh, some sort of other violation, and, mm-hmm, but it's really mm-hmm. hard to see that when you're sitting there. You may have a camera guy sitting next to you, like right next to you, um, preventing you from seeing like in the corner. So I just want to say it's hard to see everything, but you got to know the score in time. And obviously Brian Anderson knows that and said that, 
and the scoring time is really important, and it sucks for Brian. Yeah. Before we transition to the the Midwest region, um, a couple of more like more positive ways to end the this amazing regional, which had two ridiculous games that Tom referenced. Um, one is the Carson Edwards set the record for most three points three pointers made in the NCAA tournament um, for in one four, NCAA tournament in four games. In four games, breaking Glenn Rice. I feel like we mentioned nineteen eighty nine Michigan like every week. But Glenn Rice's record from 1989 Michigan. We mentioned USF twice today, yeah. and we've mentioned uh, 1989 Michigan twice today, and also last week. Um, and his uh, score—I think he became the first player ever to score 42 points in two. I, I know that he had the highest scoring average after four games of any player in uh, college basketball history in the NCAA tournament, and he passed the previous two highs for most points through four games. Were um, Buddy healed a couple three years ago with Oklahoma and um, Steph Curry with that Davidson. Was at least, so. I think that at least was since two thousand. That was oh, really was that, that was, yeah. yeah, because like Bill Bradley, I think had some big games and maybe some others, but yeah, I think he's in pretty good company. He, yeah. he, don't put this loss on Carson, Carson Edwards. <laughs> and, and remember, Carson Edwards had forty-two points. How many points did NC State score in a full game against Virginia with, a, with five players? How many points did Michigan score in their Sweet Sixteen game? <laughs> Uh, Carson Edwards has many or more points against Virginia on Saturday, as entire teams did three times this season, including NC State, which scored 24 points. Um, yeah, so uh, Carson Edwards is now a Purdue legend, uh, another Purdue legend without a Final Four, not to put rub salt in the wound, but it is uh, kind of incredible what history they have since Lee Rose's 1980 team. Gene Cady perpetually in it, but never making the Final Four. They made the Elite Eight... Um, not too much late, long later against Wisconsin uh, when I think they had Brian Cardinal um, and they lost to, it was a matchup of pretty low seeds. They, I think it was six versus eight and they lost to Wisconsin, which apparently that Wisconsin team, Tony Bennett, how about this for, uh, for bringing it back around? Tony oh, yeah. Bennett was a volunteer assistant on that, on that um, Wisconsin team. He had just retired from playing professionally. He wasn't interested in being a coach, but that run that Wisconsin had to the final four um convinced him to go into coaching. Um, and it, the, the run culminated in the Elite Eight with the win over Purdue. They ended up losing in the Final Four, the Final Four. That, Michigan State won. And who's in the Final Four also is Michigan State. So it all comes together. And then later, of course, Purdue had really good teams with like Robbie Hummel, Juwan Johnson, Etwan Moore, and others, and uh, never made it even to the Elite Eight. And here they are so close again and falling one step short of the final four. So I guess we didn't really end it on a positive. Maybe let's uh, talk about Tony Bennett and, the, and the, the monkey off his back. He definitely yeah. seemed like a cathartic moment when he was hanging on the nets. Yeah, and he even was so angry at one point, he ripped his play card after one of the Carson Edwards threes. Um, he is very calm on the court. I would love to see it. Like, it's what's, he, I, I, I'm very excited to see the Tony Bennett contrast at the final four. Um, mm-hmm. With the other coaches, they're not. Not everyone is as calm as Tony Bennett, <clears throat> Bruce Pearl, Tom or as handsome as Tony Bennett. Oh, he's definitely by far, by far the best looking coach left in college basketball. <laughs> you mean I mean, like left still playing? But what about well? I uh, mean, who, but who in the tournament even is close besides Jay Wright? Well, uh, there are a lot of people who think Laval Jordan of Butler is is quite good looking, um, and uh, I I don't know. We have. Uh, uh, let's see. We still have uh, other teams, not just um, not just the NCAA tournament teams. Shaka Smart, no. Jamie Dixon, no. Greg Marshall, no. Whoever Lipscomb's coach is, probably not. 
their coach is Casey Alexander. I probably should know that. Yeah, I, I, he's definitely the best of best looking of those that are still around, and uh, maybe one of the best looking, if not the best looking of any that have ever uh, towed a sideline here in our great sport. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on to the yeah. Let's move on to the Midwest. John Calipari's Kentucky Wildcats lost to Auburn in overtime. Another overtime game. Uh, if you think that overtime guarantees to be a classic, I would argue this game proved that otherwise. Uh, it was a close game yeah. back and yeah. forth, but not really uh, my cup of tea as far as the... Um, as my mom would say. Yeah, as the... Uh, yeah. And uh, But before, let's... Yeah, and to get there, Kentucky won a back-and-forth game against Houston, uh, in which P.J. Washington surprised everybody by playing. Um, and coming, he came off the bench, but played and played a lot of minutes and played well. And then Auburn defeated North Carolina, who suffered from a bit of the flu and despite losing Chuma Okiki, uh, won that and then won the regional final against Kentucky to go to its first Final Four in school history. Quite an achievement for Bruce Pearl's Auburn Tigers. Yeah, I it's also an achievement in part because of how they won this game. Um, they made seven three-pointers, and they only, I mean, it's still a lot, but they only forced 14 turnovers, and this is in a 45-minute game. Uh, Auburn, you may remember, most of the season basically was only good at two things, and that was forcing turnovers and making threes. And even in the stretch of now 11 straight games they've won, and they may be the only team ever to win 11 games in March or get to go 11-0 in March, um, they have been forcing a lot of turnovers. They forced... Uh, more than 22% turnovers in all but three of this 11-game stretch, but they only forced 19% in this game. And they had made, except for in one win over Alabama uh, on March 5th, in this 11-game stretch, they had made at least 11 three-pointers in every single game. And they had attempted at least uh, 25 in every game. And in this one, they only made seven and attempted 23. So uh, the surprising thing to me about that was, I'm sure if you talked to John Calipari, he said, okay, you guys are going to play Auburn. You're going to allow seven threes. You're going to only have 14 turnovers. How do you feel about yourself? He probably would have felt pretty, pretty good. And they're only going to shoot 23 threes also. It's not like they were chucking all day. Yeah. And then, and then somehow his team can't keep Bryce Brown and Jared Harper out of the lane. That would not have been my guess. Ashton Hagens and Emmanuel Quickly are – really good defensive um, guards. At least the reputation is that they're very good defenders, but um, they were not able to keep Jared Harper and Bryce Brown out, away from the basket. Uh, Harper had 11 made three-pointers and 11 attempts. Um, they combined for 10 of 17 on twos, which doesn't sound that great, but these are short players against the Kentucky team. It's a pretty good interior defensive team. Um Ashton Higgins had a, a game to forget in what may be Brutal. his final college game. He was not only got just totally torched by Auburn's guards, but he also had seven turnovers. Um, and and maybe if he has one fewer turn, like they just kept getting stripped. And and he had half the team's turnovers. PJ Washington had five, but at least he scored twenty eight points and had thirteen rebounds. He had a big game. What will almost certainly be his last college game too. Just as an un, it was a strange game. Kentucky had a big lead early. Left by a bunch of 11. It's, and then down the stretch, in the second half especially, their offense just started sputtering. Both teams kind of struggled offensively. But ultimately, Auburn got to the foul line in overtime and did enough to win uh, in what really was, the I think, the worst game of the weekend, even though it went to overtime. Yeah, this was not a game for uh, role players. Brown and Harper scored 50 of the 77 points. They made 15 of the 18 free throws. You mentioned Harper going 11-11 from the line. 
And then P.J. Washington had 28 points, uh, and the rest of Kentucky just wasn't able to really muster anything. Keldon Johnson was fine. He had 14 points, but Higgins was brutal both ends of the court. And just, yeah, it just wasn't uh, wasn't there for them. They really struggled to get good looks offensively down the stretch. Like, they were, they had some times to where they didn't know what they were doing down, in overtime down the stretch, trying to figure like, we go for a two, should we go for a three and t- waste ten seconds? Uh, just a tough, uh, tough loss for Kentucky. If you talk, I mean, Kentucky, remember, and Chumo Kiki did not play one of Auburn's best players. Like, this Kentucky, this was a path to the Final Four. Um... It was like sitting there for them. Like they're not. It wasn't like a slam dunk because Auburn's good, and we talked about how Brown and Harper are good, and uh, Auburn's now beating Kentucky, North Carolina, and Kansas in successive games, which is a pretty impressive. Obviously, Kansas is shorthanded and not as good, and but it's a pretty impressive run through the tournament when you beat three blue bloods in a row like that. Uh, so credit to Auburn. Um, but of course, whenever Kentucky loses in the Elite Eight, you start wondering: Is this is Kentucky underachieving under John Calipari? Or what is the story here? Um, so I saw one tweet say that this was the second most inexplicable loss in the Calipari era behind the West Virginia loss in the John Wall days. I believe it was 2010 uh, in the regional final against West Virginia. Um, so what do you think about Kentucky? They've, made, they've won one championship under John Calipari. They've made, what, four Final Fours under him? Uh, yeah, four Final Fours, seven Elite Eights. eights. It's pretty good. One, yeah. But it's also I mean, not... Yeah, go ahead. The bar's high when you're um, when you're at Kentucky, and when you recruit the, the way that John Calipari recruits. Uh, I really think most of the reason they're not in the Final Four is because of Ashton Hagens. He's been a different player, especially defensively of late. He had a stretch of 12 games. It started uh, with a game against North Carolina, and was it was North Carolina, Louisville, and then 10 league games. Oh, sorry, nine league games plus Kansas. So basically, nine league opponents plus North Carolina, Louisville, and Kansas. This is not like weak out-of-conference opponents. 40 steals in 12 games, um, and their their defense was standout in that time. They lost only one of those games, and that was a two-point loss to Alabama in a game in which um, he was actually terrific. He scored uh, he scored 12 points, and he had uh, six assists. It's only two turnovers and three steals. That's 40 steals in 12 games. In the 16 games since, I think it's 16, it might be 15, he only has 11 steals. And, I mean, there's more to, to life than steals. I'm sure the Sky Report said, hey, don't be careful with the ball around Ashton Hagens. But um, the fact that Kentucky really had problems with guards, like this is this is part of why I thought Kentucky would play well against Wofford, and they did, is because they have really athletic guards who, can, who are long and can give trouble to other guards. And I didn't think that they would have a lot of trouble with Auburn. Now, granted, Auburn only scored 1.05 points per possession. It was really more the offense that was a problem. But then there again, you have Ashton Hagens with his seven turnovers. Um, when I look at this Kentucky team, you know they obviously had a very tough start to the season against Duke where people severely questioned them. And, and then it went on from there. It wasn't just that loss. They dropped as far as 9th to 19th in Ken Palm. They lost a game in Angel Court to Seton Hall. Uh, but after that game, they were pretty much very good most of the rest of the season. Um, and they finished top 15 in offense and defense. They had beaten Auburn twice already. Uh, it's certainly a missed opportunity. Uh, I thought they were going to lose to Houston, but then when T.J. Washington played and played so well, obviously that's a good reason why they won. Uh, and then to lose to Auburn is uh, it's just disappointing. Um, this is not one of John Calipari's most talented teams, but he had some class balance. You know, Washington's a sophomore, Reed Travis is a senior, Nick Richards is a sophomore to go along with the rest of the freshmen. But ultimately, he didn't have the guard play that he thought he was going to have. 
Um, and this is now, I think, two straight years where he's struggled uh, at the guard position. Last year, eventually, uh, Shea Alexander stepped up, um, but Hamdo Diallo was not good, and neither was uh, Quade Green. And then this year, um, they thought they had their answer in Ashton Hagens, as it turned out. He wasn't quite ready to be a Final Four point guard. Yeah. It's, I, I think Kentucky, it's fair to, it's actually fair to cut this both ways. One, they made, he's made seven Elite Eights in ten years, and he's missed the tournament one year, which is inexcusable, but still. But yeah, no all injury year. Yeah. yeah, it's still only one national title in um, in those in those years, and that's tough to swallow for Kentucky fans, given how good they normally are. You see, you know, North Carolina win multiple titles. You see, UConn win multiple titles. Uh, Villanova. Villanova. It's just you know, like they're not. And, and uh, Duke. Duke won the first year Cal Fire was there. So in the yeah. ten years he's been there, uh, Villanova, North Carolina, Duke, and uh, and who was the other one? That, oh, Connecticut, all won, yeah. each won two national titles in that span. Right. So on the one hand, yes, you can say, why haven't they won more titles? On the other hand, who's been more consistent in the tournament than uh, Kentucky? Duke hasn't made the Final Four since 2015 now when they won the national title. I think that what hurts Kentucky is that 2015 team. I think that is a real – that team lost – the team that lost Wisconsin in the semifinals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a team that you know was undefeated entering the Final Four. Uh, if they if they had won that, they'd have two titles. They'd have an amazing achievement under Calipari. And now I think that since that team, that's kind of left a, a sour taste in the fans' mouth. Um, and that's why they're kind of down on Calipari. But I don't think that you can ask too much more of them. I just think it's, you know, like maybe just win another title. It would be totally different. That's just probably dumb luck that he hasn't won another title. But that's just how it is. I mean, the last three years uh, have been have been rough. Like, not rough in like a bad sense, but just they could have done more. Like 2017, they played a better North Carolina team, but they were in that game till the end, and they lost on a big shot by uh, Luke May when he was kind of a role player on that North Carolina team, and, and it was a great Elite Eight game. when they had Darren Fox and Malik Monk. Okay, that's totally excusable, but it's a close game where you're like, hey, we could have gone to the Final Four, and North yeah. Carolina ended up winning the national title that year. Um, and then the next year, um, last year, they weren't, really particularly good they were a four seed but a five seed but then the bracket opened up for them when uh buffalo beat arizona and then virginia lost to umbc not to mention i think cincinnati was two seed that lost like that and tennessee was three seed that lost so basically the sweet 16 was kentucky kansas state loyola and nevada and kentucky was clearly the favorite to advance to the final four from that bracket and yet they lost to kansas state um, and that team was very much flawed. We talked about they had Chico Alexander and Kevin Knox, and P.J. Washington started to come into his own late in the season, but it wasn't nearly the kind of team that uh, they were used to there. Uh, and then this year, another team that wasn't as good as the teams that were in like 2017 or 2015, uh, certainly 2012, um, but a team that still made it as a two-seed, uh, had a chance of a one-seed until the SEC tournament lost to Tennessee, uh, had the injury issue with P.J. Washington, but he came back and he was healthy. Um, and then they played a team that they had already beaten twice in Auburn after a, a somewhat surprising kind of back-from-the-dead performance by P.J. Washington that made them beat Houston. And then they lost to Auburn in a game they led by 11 in, in overtime. Uh, they led by 11, not in overtime, but they led by 11 and lost in overtime. Um, you know, if you look at it in the sense of, like, there was a point in each of those seasons within a game in the NCAA tournament where you're like, or you felt like that they were they were the they were the best shot from their region to go to the Final Four, and they didn't make the Final Four in any of those years, uh, which is tough as a Kentucky fan. You know, still I wouldn't trade the success, but I'm sure 
that Kentucky fans are just kind of frustrated. And one other blue blood question for you. North Carolina bows out some flu questions for them. A team that uh, I thought was going to go to the Final Four of that region uh, gave up 56 second half points to Auburn. Uh, do you think it was more just like just Auburn shooting the lights out as they have been known to do? They were 17 of 37 from three. That game, they were chucking it. Or do you th- yeah, it just seems like their offense was fine, but they gave up 1.29 points per possession to Auburn. Uh, what was your take on North Carolina's game against the uh, Tigers? Well, I, saw, I watched the first half, and it was pretty competitive, and yeah. I didn't watch much of the second half when they got just, just steamrolled. Yeah. Um, you know, Luke May had a pretty bad game. Uh, Nasir Little, who I think was supposedly most affected by the flu, had a bad game. You know, I think at times this year, North Carolina has not been good defensively. They haven't paid attention to the details, um, and it's something they basically cleaned up by the end of the season, so it seemed. Um, their defense, you know, they had these random games, like Syracuse at home, like uh, the Louisville game that they got blown out in, like the the time they lost to Virginia, where their defense just was not good. They were giving up like 60% EFG, effective field percentage, in those games. And then by the end of the season, you know, with the exception of the Duke game, even the Duke game, they played pretty well on defense. They had held opponents under a point per possession and. Uh, five of their six games entering the Auburn game. Um, a part of it is you just run into a team that's hot and they hit a bunch of threes, but part of it is, uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess a lot of it is that, but I think it's a little bit more than that. Their defense uh, was not good. They didn't make the adjustments they need to make to force Auburn to take the ball to the rim. Um, uh, Auburn took 20, 37 threes and 29, although they were 60% from twos. I mean, that has to be maybe that's one of the worst defensive performances from a field percentage perspective in the Ken Palm era. I'm gonna look this up. Let's see if um, if yeah, this Auburn. Yeah, you. Yeah, it's yeah, a, so Auburn. The Auburn performance was the. Uh, let's find it. Effective field goal. That's two points. That's three points. Um, I think there's one. Um, op- opponents points. It was seventh most. Three point rate, it was the the it was tenth most. Two point percentage, it was sixth most. Um, it doesn't look like effective field percentage. It didn't quite make it. Uh, I might be able. I might be able to have this. Let's yeah. we'll give give the uh, computer a second here. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, this is a team that didn't really have a true um, rim rim stopper, and neither Kobe White. Kobe White's not really a, a defense first player. So, I don't know. I, it's a you run into a buzzsaw, and um, you know a, a North Carolina team that seemed to be put together in a way with the right balance of classes, especially in Kobe White emerged and then this year a little of late to really make a run to national title. Um, they ended up unable to stop Auburn in the Sweet Sixteen. First of all, Creighton in a game against Southern. I'm gonna have to reduce this to tournament games, but Creighton in a game against Southern Illinois in 2012 had a 92.5 effective field goal percentage. And you know what the best part about that is? Doug McDermott only took one three, and he made it. They was twelve of four. Their team was twelve of fourteen from three. Ethan Raggy was five of six, uh, and they were a measly thirty-one of forty from two points. Uh, they beat Southern Illinois eighty-eight sixty-nine. I can go back and search only tournament games. That was actually the second most points they scored in Southern Illinois that year. I think. <laughs> that's insane. Um, yeah. yeah. That's by the way. That's the highest in any t- game in any conference since ninety-six ninety-seven. And then, they shot uh, yeah, 86% on threes, 70% on twos. Well, yeah. What's Southern Illinois doing? Jeez. Their defense yeah. that year ranked uh, 
197th, better than their offense under Chris Lowry, who uh, at one point was considered an up-and-comer in the business. But He went 216 in 2007, and then uh, his team kind of went south every single year since after that. Uh, Auburn, not even in the top... Is that right? Yeah, they're not even in the top 25 of tournament games since 96-27. Number one, very gettable game, by the way. Uh, um, since when? 96-97? I mean, since 96-97, but it's in the last three years. It's Villanova over Oklahoma? Correct, yes. 82.7%. Yes. Good job. Yes, yeah. sir. Auburn doesn't even look like it's in the top 50, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Carolina's two, out. Two Oklahoma references in this. Uh, two, yeah. two, uh, 2016 Oklahoma references. Yeah, so Carolina's out. Kentucky's out. Bruce Pearl and his reaction shots on the sideline will live for another weekend in NCAA tournament lore, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. Yeah. Any other I, thoughts? I, I guess. <laughs> he's funny to watch. I don't think he's like a particularly redeeming character, but it is fun to watch. Try to read his lips. Uh, it does seem like the end of an era in that. My other thought about this reason is Houston looks like uh, Calvin Sampson may be the front runner at Arkansas, a job that we didn't discuss last week that came up, and I think just maybe an hour or two before we recorded. Mike Anderson's out there, and uh, the AD at Houston is um, used to be at, sorry, the AD at Arkansas used to be at Houston. Samson had that team playing really well. They had a chance to beat Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and what was actually quite good, people don't talk about it, because in so many good games this weekend, no one really talks about Kentucky and Houston. But um, but Houston came back after being down by 11 at halftime um, and got great performance from Armani Brooks, who scored 20 points on six threes. Um, it wasn't Corey Davis's best game, and if it had been a bit better game for him yeah, as a senior, uh, probably Kentucky would have lost around earlier to Houston, even with the performance that P.J. Washington had, where he had 16 points um, on only eight field goal attempts. Yeah, so could be the end of the era there, and uh, we'll see where the American Conference goes for its standard bear. Uh, in the East, Duke lost to Michigan State in a game that seemed like it took an hour and a half yesterday. It really flew by. Uh, that was after Duke survived against Virginia Tech on... Friday night in a where they had another opponent miss a shot at the buzzer. This one only would have tied the game. A wide open tip in with 1.1 seconds left. And this was after Michigan State smoked LSU to make the regional final. And uh, Brendan, this game, 10%, 10.8% of all televisions were on this game yesterday. It was a very highly rated basketball game for regional final. Um, it was very back and forth, very even throughout most of the game. And then at the end, it just kind of seemed like and just snuck up on Duke, and the game was over. And uh, they may—they were the talk of college basketball all year, but they probably were not the best team in college basketball. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I, we didn't really have time to talk about it last week. Um, obviously, neither Tom nor I picked uh, had Duke either win the national title, um, uh, entering the NCAA tournament, nor did we have them number had Duke number one in our last top twenty-five, which had which was a week before the NCAA tournament field was announced. Of course, Zion was still hadn't come back and played yet, and Duke played a terrific ACC tournament with Zion. Um, but I don't think that Duke was the best team in college basketball this year. Uh, I know that seems like an obvious thing to say now because they are no longer playing, but um, you know, seem, people seem to just assume that this was the best team. Um, and ultimately, they didn't have a very good supporting cast. Their three-point shooting really wasn't the biggest problem. Um, they just were overall ineffective. They had, you know, in this game, they had a problem with turnovers. Zion and RJ Barrett for 12 turnovers. Um, their offense 
never quite reached the level that it probably should have, uh, considering the talent that it that the team had. Um, of course, they were 327 three-point percentage, which didn't help. Uh, they also were not a good free throw percentage team, which hurt them in this game, um, in particular when R.J. Barrett first missed a free throw, um, first of two, down two, and then tried to make the second in. Uh, and missed the, and made sorry tried to miss the second and made it yeah um, and uh, you know Zion Williamson didn't take a shot the last six forty two of the game he, they were trying to get him the ball in different situations you could tell they it kind of took too much off the, off the clock a couple of times trying to get him the ball but um, you know he's not he's not LeBron James he can't just take the ball from the top of the key and drive and score he, you know he's an am- amazing player one of the most memorable players we've ever seen in college basketball. Uh, the dunk he had on Friday against Virginia Tech, another, another game that, um, that we'll probably will not talk about as much as, as is deserved. Um, that was, of course, a, a game and a team that I thought was going to be the one that was going to beat Duke was Virginia Tech, um, and they had a chance to tie it late. Um, there was a weird, like, f- forearm, like a, an arm shiver elbow on Zion's, and that became the fourth foul on a Med Hill instead, and then he ended up missing the tying shot Hill did at the buzzer. Um, Zion had an amazing dunk in that game that was that brought back memories in the broadcast of Grant Hill, um, his dunk in the regional national final semifinals in 1991 against UNLV. Um, yeah, I, I just you know Duke was not a good shooting team. They didn't run a very interesting offense that got them easy buckets. They had to work pretty hard for everything, as much as you have to work hard for everything when Zion Williams gets three or four or five dunks a game. They didn't get enough from their complementary parts and that includes cam reddish who actually had not a good season like just to be honest not a good season he has 39 percent on two points a 6 8 cam reddish made less than 40 percent of his two pointers this year um he was also a non-factor on the glass for a duke team that uh, struggled a lot in the defensive glass this year they were 238th in america on defensive glass um, Trey Jones was good, but ultimately had Achilles heel of three point shooting. Um, he had a, that good three point shooting game. Uh, I think it was against Virginia Tech. Yeah. A bunch of threes. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of the team, you know, I thought Jack White early in the season, he looked pretty good. Maybe like a perfect kind of, uh, big, um, stretch five, but, uh, and after having some very good games earlier in the season, he just disappeared from the rotation. He didn't even play in three of the games, he played three minutes each in the last two games. Uh, Javin Delorier and Marcus Bolden were kind of similar players. Uh, Delorier's a little bit more mobile. Bolden's a better shot blocker. Um, neither one of them was very good at the five and just limited the amount of space that uh, Duke had. Uh, Alex O'Connell, who seemed to be in position to be a kind of a, a low-usage, complimentary, just stand out there and create space kind of guy, he um, only played three minutes against Michigan State um, after playing a lot because of Cam Reddish's injury against Virginia Tech. Uh, you know, I think that... This has been a long story for Coach K, his inability to get the most out of his complimentary pieces. Um, now, obviously, he's had better success at times. He's won a lot of titles. He's won, gone to a lot of Final Fours and won a lot of games. But there have been a lot of times that um, Duke has had talent that could have been developed to be ready for games like these, where they needed a guy to three-pointer, they needed a guy to do this. But in this game, Alex O'Connell was not ready to contribute anything positive. Javin Delorier was actually good. Uh, he uh, he was the best complimentary player. Uh, Cam Reddish was kind of a non-factor. Marcus Bolden was a non-factor. Um, and Jack White was a non-factor. So uh, you can't... Even having two of the best, say, three or four or five players in college basketball is not enough to get due to the Final Four. 
Yeah, and look at just the minutes played. Barrett played 40 minutes. Trey Jones played 40 minutes. Reddish didn't start the game, but then played the final 37 minutes of the game. So Coach K obviously didn't trust his bench. Uh, they committed 17 turnovers in this game, seven of them by Barrett, who also did not play well. Uh, it just is a. He had a great game against Virginia Tech. He yeah, had like he 10 assists. Or something. Yeah, he was. Uh, 11 assists. He was the stud against Virginia Tech. This team is just inconsistent and not as deep as people think. Um, their defense was fine, but their offense just didn't flow uh, in this game. And, it's, and credit to Izzo, who I think was one and ten or one and eleven against Coach K before. I, I think I heard two and nine, or maybe that was after the game. Maybe it was one and nine, and then he became two and nine. Well, whatever it was, it wasn't. It was a very one-sided record, which I should have known, I guess, but I maybe didn't know and forgot. It was surprising to me, but Izzo finally beats Coach K. Um, in a big spot. And yeah, Duke now two straight Elite Eight losses. They lost to Kansas, of course, last year. If Grayson Allen's shot rolls in off the rim, maybe we're singing a different tune about Duke. Maybe they're losing to Villanova by 25 points in the national semifinal <laughs> last year, not Kansas. Um, but yeah, this, these, uh, the thing about college basketball, though, is like everybody but one team wins a national title, and it's often in a single elimination game where the best team doesn't win. Now, Michigan State actually ended up entered this game as a favorite on KenPom.com but not on Las Vegas. So this wasn't really like a stunning loss or a game you absolutely say Duke should have won, but maybe Duke should have been better by this point in the season given the talent that Coach K's recruited. Maybe that Duke team last year should have beaten Kansas uh, given the talent he had there and the talent that went off to the NBA. So maybe that is a fair criticism of Duke. Uh, I'm not sure. It's a, it's a one-game season at this point. But uh, yeah, Duke did not play well. And C- Coach K, you can argue, probably didn't coach him too well if Zion Williamson hasn't. Uh, is just going you know, 642 with one shot or no shots, and just the way that the, the disjointed nature of this team down the stretch, uh, it didn't, didn't look like a well-coached team or a team that knew exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, on the one hand, you could see how this team could have been overcoached by a different coach, and it's part of attracting these this talent and yeah. saying, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of freedom. Um, and it's like, let your players play, let their talent come out, and then when they were considered like an, a super team early in the season, it was like, yeah, that's what you should do, just... Put them in some screen rolls, put them in isolation, let them let your better players beat their worst players. But on offense, it didn't really work. And on defense, the defense with Zion was always decent. Uh, without Zion, you mean when they had Zion and Javon Delore in the floor, especially, that was a pretty good basis. Those two plus Trey Jones, those were three good defensive players. Um, but ultimately, their defense wasn't exceptional well the defense was pretty good I, with Zion I, it still felt like it could have been better they had a they had a ceiling of a, of a really really good defense and they but when you're young it's a little bit hard to do we probably should talk about Michigan State I'm sure they're feeling a little bit neglected all the Michigan State yeah. fans that are listening um Cassius Winston uh was good but not great um he didn't shoot the ball well but he had 10 assists to one turnover uh Xavier Tillman who has gotten a lot of Nick Ward's minutes since Nick Ward got injured um and even since Nick Ward's been back was awesome uh he had 19 points on uh 12 field goal attempts including a three-pointer he only had seven all season but he went one for one yesterday uh he also had nine rebounds two blocks and three steals uh, to force three three of those 17 turnovers and this is a team that you know they lost kyle aarons for the season in the big 10 tournament they lost josh lang for the season around the turn of the year um and they basically went with six players you know gabe brown played three minutes but they went with six players um, and all six players contributed, even though, you know, Aaron Henry and Matt McQuaid, who Matt McQuaid made a couple of highlight plays, and Aaron Henry was great against LSU, but neither one of them played great in this game. But they had, you know, they have six guys that any in any game, three or four of them are going to have good games. And in this case, it was really Xavier Tillman first, 
and Cassius Winston, um, who has to be good for them every day, um, every game, and Kenny yeah. Goins. He played 40 minutes, Winston. Four guys on this team played 38 minutes. There's no rest for this team, basically. McQuaid, 39, Henry, 38, and Goins, uh, 38. It was just, yeah, it's a gritty team, an impressive team that played really well and took Duke's punches and was down. They were down, what, three points with um, 141 to go in the game and came back and won the game. And one other thing that was kind of crazy about this game is Duke, which everyone complains all the time, always gets the whistles. They only had three fouls on them entering like the entering the last minute of the game, basically. So that it, hurt it hurt them. So it, there's a situation where Duke, uh, you know, like they were losing and they're going to have to foul. And it's going to take like five or six seconds just to get them to the line, even if they fouled right away, just because like inbound foul, inbound foul, inbound foul, inbound mm-hmm. foul. Now we shoot. That's mm-hmm. crazy. So, you know, that doesn't happen in the NBA because there's the last two minutes rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but just funny how Duke's good defense without fouling just punished them down the stretch of the game. Uh, it didn't really end up being a factor because uh, was it Winston who ran? Yeah, Winston ran mm-hmm. around and got away from everybody. But uh, it's just kind of funny how that worked out. Yeah, you could see the players on the bench. So when Winston got the inbounds after the Barrett you know, unintentional make, and he started jogging on the court thinking it was a one and one and then but it was clearly only the fourth team foul. Uh, Jim Nance and uh, and that crew was on that one. Um, but you, you could also see in the background, like the bench at Duke, they were like, they realized, and I think it was Jordan Goldwire talking to someone else and saying, "Oh yeah, we have we have three more fouls to give." You could see his, you could almost read his lips. Um, and at that point, it was like four point seven left, so they would have committed three fouls in four point seven seconds, and then get the ball down the court and try to hit a game tying shot or game-winning shot so uh worked against them in that game i'm sure they're not gonna have people crying for how duke getting maybe a friendly whistle and not getting a lot of foul calls actually hurt them that's uh that's irony for you i guess um let's move yeah. on yeah we've we got three more things to do we're gonna do a quick news and notes segment um and then we're gonna move on to our this is your life a little bit of kind of overall context for the four final four teams before we give our preview and picks Let's start with news and notes. Um, let's start with transfers and also declarations for the NBA. There have been a lot of declarations for the NBA, but a couple that stood out to me, uh, Shamori Pons um, going pro after his junior season at St. John's. That team uh, lost also uh, two, at least two seniors, uh, Marvin Clark and Justin Simon, um, and they might be in trouble uh, moving forward. Uh, it looks like Chris Mullen is going to stay, though, for another year. Taylor Horton Tucker at Iowa State um, is going pro as well. And then um, for teams that uh, Tom and I follow, we talked about Providence getting a transfer and losing two last week. Well, Northwestern has Jordan Ash, Barrett Benson, Aaron Falzone, all kind of complimentary players this year or deep bench players transferring. I think they only have six scholarship players on their roster right now. Um, and Kansas, um, Tom Borstein's favorite, Charlie Moore, the transfer from Cal, uh, did not have a good season. And I think he's, I think he's grad transferring or whatever. He's transferring out of Cal, uh, oh, sorry, out of Kansas Dang somewhere else. God, no, whatever he, I think he's moving closer to home. Charlie Moore just didn't work out. I don't know enough what's going on. That was a bad, uh, acquisition for can acquisition. That sounds like a pro team, but it was a bad pickup or a bad transfer in for Kansas. And now he's transferring out. Uh, he just really he, he had opportunities too because Kansas was so banged up, and he just didn't make it happen. So that's not really a surprise uh, to see. The other Shamari Pons, Pons is not projected to be in the first round, as far as I understand. So are you surprised? Yeah, are you a little surprised he's going now? I mean, I um, I'm not season. surprised. Okay. He was he like tested the waters last year. Okay. Um, 
I don't think he is really re- relishing another year on campus. Uh, that program really isn't going anywhere. Um, I said I don't think it's going anywhere. They have, um, yeah, let me just make sure that Simon and Clark are, are, are seniors. Uh, Simon was only a junior, actually, and Clark was a senior. So they'll have Mustafa Heron back with uh, Justin Simon, uh, LJ Figueroa, um, and, you know, they have some kind of uh, – Sidney Kita was a starter part of the year for them to transfer from South Carolina, and I think the other – he was one of the transfers coming in. So they, they might not be terrible, but they won't be as good as they were this year, and they were disappointing this year. Um, coaching changes or coaching yeah. news, um, a lot of it. So Rick Bird has announced his retirement. Uh, which is, I guess, a small surprising to me, uh, but he is relatively old. Um, Go out on top he, with an NCAA tournament win. Yeah, over Temple, who's coach, of course, um, Fran Dunphy is being replaced by Aaron McKee. We knew that already. Uh, the big uh, hirings of the week, Alabama hired Nate Oates from Buffalo, even after he just signed an extension with the Bulls. Uh, Cal hired Mark Fox, ex of Nevada and Georgia, to replace Wyking Jones. Uh Vanderbilt hired Jerry Stackhouse, or it's rumored to be quite certain, to replace Bryce Drew. The likely has become official Fred Hoiberg replacing Tim Miles. Uh, we talked about Kelvin Sampson. Uh, so those are the official ones. And Kyle Smith did ink his deal with the news that John Rothstein broke on our podcast uh, last week. Uh, he didn't actually break it on the podcast. We read his tweet on the podcast. He wasn't on our podcast. Um, but he's got a six-year contract with $1.4 million a year. Um, and that goes a long way in Pullman, Washington. It makes him <laughs> apparently the second lowest paid coach in the Pac-12. Wow. Yeah. Uh, then some rumors, some big rumors. Texas A&M, apparently they backed up the uh, Brings truck uh, from College Station to Blacksburg to try to get Buzz Williams. I think that's a likely move as well. UCLA is looking apparently at Mick Cronin and Jamie Dixon at, for that spot, which is interesting. Two coaches have not had much success in the NCAA tournament. Neither one of whom, well, I guess Dixon's style has improved since he went to TCU. Um, and then we mentioned Kelvin Sampson. Um, any thoughts on these likely hirings or official hirings? Anything that sticks out to you? So forgive my ignorance, but Buzz Williams, is, he's, he's going to get paid a lot of money to go to Texas A&M. Is that why he's going there? Because is that really a better job than Virginia Tech at this point? Like he's what also he's done from there? Texas. Okay. So, um, what yeah. is, given the way Virginia Tech, he's coached Virginia Tech, done what he's done there in the ACC, uh, don't you think if there was another bigger, better job that opened up in a year or two, he might be more inclined to take that rather than going to Texas A&M, I guess? Like rather than going to College Station, maybe going, I don't know, to Austin, Texas? Yeah. Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, Texas A&M, he was an assistant there for two seasons, uh, I guess under Billy Gillespie. Uh, 04 to 06, that sounds like the Billy Gillespie era to me. Um, yeah, I... I think it's interesting. You know, I thought it was interesting when Kyle Smith went to from USF to Washington State, which honestly isn't. He's only like a marginally better job. It's a very difficult job in the Pac-12, but uh, oh, there's sometimes major conference job. It though. is a major conference, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Texas A&M obviously is looking to, to strike big. They wouldn't have fired Billy Kennedy if they didn't think they were going to get a big name. Um, yeah, UCLA people are saying this is a bad look for them to get someone. Uh, like Mick Cronin or Jamie Dixon, two good coaches, but not with much um, uh, NCAA tournament success. Certainly not recently. Um, Jamie Dixon went to the Elite Eight in 2011, um, and Mick Cronin has been in the Sweet 16 in like seven or eight years. But uh, I mean, he's a perennial underachiever, so that's weird. I don't know it's just it's weird to me that UCLA has people turning them down, but I guess that's the 
That's the era we live in. I just don't know why you don't wait until Chris Beard becomes available to talk to. Like Chris Beard stayed one year at Arkansas Little Rock. He stayed like three minutes at UNLV. <laughs> UNLV yeah. And and you know I know he used to coach at Texas A Texas Tech for a very long time under Bob Bobby Knight. Um, but at the same time, you know, would you not leave what probably is on the surface the, the worst or second worst job in the Big Twelve, maybe only ahead of TCU? For UCLA, if you if they're willing to pay you the money, um, I, I certainly would at least wait to maybe maybe they know that Chris Beard doesn't want the job. Who knows? Maybe but he, I really, would, he yeah. really hates driving in traffic. Yeah, um, five million dollars, maybe he'll get a helicopter. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on. Let's take a few minutes with this segment. I think it's important to think about how these teams got here. You know, we kind of rush through like what they did to win, and then we go to the previews, but. We're going to take a few minutes on each team just to kind of put in perspective what they've accomplished. Um, some the kind of the rocky road some of them got to this point uh, to get you guys ready for this Saturday. So Tom's going to take two teams. I mean, we'll, we'll talk back and forth, but Tom will introduce uh, Auburn and Texas Tech because those are the from the conferences that he was covering most closely this year. And I will talk uh, introduce the Michigan State and Virginia segments. We're going to do it in reverse order of what I would consider the most compelling storyline. So we're starting with Auburn. Right, so Auburn, no stranger to controversy. It's their first ever Final Four. Obviously, Charles Barkley has been enjoying that with his stuffed tigers and his uh, pom-poms and his streamers in the CBS studios. It's their first Final Four in school history. It's the fifth season for Bruce Pearl at Auburn. Uh, Two years ago, his assistant Chuck Person was indicted for cheating, and this is after Bruce Pearl, of course, had a checkered past and was fired uh, with the show cause at Tennessee for recruiting violations. Remember Aaron Kraft, the rosy-cheeked, uh, Ohio State guard, he was involved in that. Uh, Auburn really had a long tournament trout entering last year, 2003. A 2003 tournament was the previous one they had made entering last season. Uh, last season, they started off guns blazing, then kind of fell apart and was blown out by Clemson uh, last year in the second round of the tournament. Um, really not a good uh, look for them. They come back this year. They're kind of a preseason top 15 team. Can The metrics like them a lot. Uh, the metrics continued to like them as they kept losing every game to a good team and winning uh, every game against bad teams. Uh, they started off slow in conference, two and four. Um, their defense is really something that is, we've talked about this on the show, but they do one thing well, and that's forced turnovers. And they kind of, if you don't panic and give you give them the ball, they're not really good otherwise and as far as rebounding or shooting defense. Uh, but really, they took off in the tournament. They blew Kansas out of the water. They hit a ton of threes in transition. It's like Kansas never had a scouting report. Uh, they've won 12 straight games overall. Um, eight of them A wins, which they didn't have a single A win in the Ken Palm classification until March 2nd. Um, they've been a turnover-forcing machine in the tournament. Every game they've had, they've forced uh, more than the national average in the tournament during their streak. They beat, as I said, three Blue Bloods in Kansas, Carolina, Kentucky, and they're going to a Final Four uh, in Minneapolis for the first time in school history. So Bruce Pearl, not the easiest guy to root for. I find him hilarious to watch on the sideline. Doesn't really mean he's a likable guy, but here they are going to Minneapolis. Uh, and also, they, we should also mention they lost Chuma Okiki in a, to a devastating knee injury uh, in the regional semifinal on Friday. So they'll be without him, of course, in the Final Four. That could hamstring them. But mm-hmm. uh, an interesting, certainly not... It may not be the most rootable team, but they're certainly had an interesting last two years. Basically, is what it comes down to. Yeah, they're not, I, they're not boring. <laughs> no, they're. Um, I, I was listening to uh, Matt Titus on one Chinese podcast, and he said there's an irony in the fact that Charles Barkley has to root for a team that basically has gotten the Final Four by shooting three pointers. 
when he basically when he said a few years ago that no ch- jump shooting team will ever win the NBA title, um, and this is before Golden State has now won what three out of four. Um, the t- a couple things that I think of is how you know the road is just not smooth, um, not as smooth as we think. We think Final Four teams are a certain kind of thing. This team lost two transfers before the season, Mustafa Heron and Deshaun Murray. And Heron was one of their best players last year. Some You could argue he's the second best player. Um, or someone even say their best player. Uh, they both transferred. Heron, of course, he's mentioned that he's at, with the St. John's. Um, and then it, they started 2-4 and four in conference. Um, and again, as you know, when you look at our top 25, um, Tom had them higher early and then I had them higher late. Um, but ultimately... You know, in aggregate, they're like the 17th ranked team in our top 25 polls um, because they just couldn't, they didn't beat anyone until the last uh, couple weeks of the season. They ran through the SEC tournament, beating, uh, I mean, they only had to beat Florida to get to the finals, and they, and they knocked off Tennessee, blew them out. Um, yeah, if you look at our top 25s, um, Auburn, you had them 7th, I had them 11th in our first one. Then you had them 11th, yeah. and I had them 21st in our second one. Then uh, you had them unranked, and then I, I had them 19th in our third one, and you had them unranked, and I had them 19th in our last one. They are the lowest-rated team uh, in our aggregate top 25s at 18th for me and 17th for you, and um, they are th- decidedly the underdog when it comes to the end, the final four. I think they're something like uh, they're less than 10% to win the title. Um, they do have the tougher, presumably tougher first round first matchup against Virginia. But that is Auburn making it, uh, its first ever uh, Final Four appearance. They made, the, they made the Elite Eight in 1986, which I believe was like the year after Charles Barkley left or like two years after he left, which you, you assume that it kind of goes together. Just like Virginia's last Final Four, we haven't got to them yet, they was, was the year after Ralph Sampson left. Um, of course, they made the Final Four with Ralph Sampson as well. Um, so next up is Michigan State. Michigan State, of course, under Tom Izzo, he's made, what, eight Final Fours. He's won a national title. He's considered, like, Mr. March. But yet, in the last three years, um, they had a two-seed and a three-seed, and they made the tournament a third time as well. And they didn't get to the Sweet 16 in any of those years. They were considered snubbed, kind of like this year, like the best number two seed when they lost a 15-seeded Middle Tennessee State. Middle Not Tennessee. What? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then that year, Middle Tennessee ended up helping Syracuse make the Final Four, and Syracuse in the Elite Eight that year beat Virginia. Uh, so we all, again, we get a little bit of full circle there. Um, and then the very, and then last year, uh, Michigan State lost to, Virginia, to Syracuse in a game where Jaron Jackson, uh, the junior, I think it's junior, he didn't play very much against Syracuse, and he couldn't get his best five on the floor. They had Miles Bridges, they had Jaron Jackson. Um, and yet they really couldn't get their best five on the floor. Part of it was Cassius Winston actually was not as good last year. He had committed a lot of turnovers. They And then, of course, over the last year or so, there was a lot of turmoil around Michigan State. They were, ESPN seemed to be digging deep into Michigan State. They had a report about both the uh, football coach and the basketball coach, Mark D'Antoni, um, Mark D'Antonio, uh, and uh, Anton Mizzo, that there was uh, sexual assault incidents involving a player and a and a. a Physical assault involving a woman and a coach. Um, not much came of that, but they also put it in the light of the Larry Nasser scandal, which really upset, uh, I know, Michigan State people and Tom Izzo, uh, because it kind of implied that, Mich- that Tom Izzo knew about Larry Nasser, even though they didn't say that in the article. It was kind of put in like the same context. I guess maybe a, a, pro- a university that had kind of run amok or had lost control. So 
and that was like last year around this time. He was getting questions like constantly every press conference about the, uh, about Larry Nasser uh, and these assault cases. Um, this year they they started the season. They looked very mediocre against Kansas. Uh, Kansas City we thought wasn't the best team in the country at the time, even though they, Michigan came back and made it close. And then they played well in Las Vegas, their big other tournament, but they didn't get played North Carolina. North Carolina lost to Texas. They beat Texas and UCLA, two teams that didn't really make the NCAA tournament. So those games didn't really bring the buzz that they thought they would bring. Um, then they and they lost to Louisville in the Big Ten ACC Challenge in like a weird game where um, it just was a weird on the stretch. They airballed. A, I think Josh Langford actually airballed a free throw trying to miss it on purpose, or he banked it off the backboard. Then they won 13 in a row, uh, but the, and then they suffered three injuries. Josh Langford injured out for the year. Nick Ward got hurt, broke his hand, uh, and they had a three-game losing streak where Cassius Winston had nine turnovers. Turnovers were a huge problem for Michigan State last year. They were a lesser problem this year, uh, but they were a problem in that game, and you could see signs of maybe that coming up again. Uh, but since that loss to Illinois, Michigan State's only lost once in a, a close game on the road at Indiana. They were the double pick 10 champs. Um, and much like how Jarrett Culver plays at Texas Tech, um, Cassius Winston has taken a lot of the burden off of guys like Matt McGloin, Aaron Henry, Kenny Goins, Xavier Tillman, allowing them to be lower volume, higher efficiency players while Cassius Winston takes the scoring burden on himself and the ball handling burden. Um, it's their first Final Four since 2015. 2015, they were the other team in a year that had amazing Final Four teams. Kentucky, the undefeated Kentucky team, a great Wisconsin team, and a, and a very good to great Duke team ended up winning the whole thing. They were the other team in as a seven seed. And that year, who did they beat in the second round? Virginia. So, yeah. uh, again, all the connections are there. Let's move on to the Big 12 uh, co-champs. Yeah, Texas Tech, a team everyone saw coming. This is really a team that everyone had penciled into their final four before the start of the season. and Maybe the first round of the Big 12 tournament, but nothing past that. This team really lost everybody. They were good last year. Then they lost everybody. This is team is never. This is a, one of the toughest major conference jobs in the sport. We've talked about Tony Bennett at Washington State, where Kyle Smith is going, and this one is listed on is on the short list of worst and toughest jobs uh, in a major conference. It's Chris Beard's third season here. They made back-to-back Elite Eights and now a Final Four. Um, their history um, uh, is obviously not great. And then they were picked seventh last year after making the Elite Eight uh, last year. They lost a lot of players. They lost Zare Smith. They lost Zach Smith, Justin Gray, Nick Stevenson. And Keenan Evans was gone. They bring back Jared Culver. And then Chris Beard just makes a tick. Now, they're not fun to watch. They play great defense. Culver, uh, sometimes they can rely too much on, too much on him, as Brendan said. Uh, they added a transfer in Tree Owens. Um, and here they are. They just played very well. They won the toughest conference in the country, or one of the toughest conferences in the country, depending on how you see it. Um, they started really well this season, 15-1. and one. Uh, Their lone loss was to Duke in a game that they uh, were in for basically three-quarters of the game at the Garden and then lost. Uh, then their offense just took a took a break. Um, it was obviously tied to a slump for Jared Culver. But then since then, Texas Tech is 13-1. and one. Their lone loss was a weird one to West Virginia, uh, just kind of a blip on the radar screen. And since then, they've gone from number 16 to number 5 in Ken Palm. Uh, we talked about a, a lot of what they did. They took down Michigan, a very, you know, not, their, not the best Michigan team offensively, but still one that has a very good offensive coach. Held them to 44 points in a Sweet 16 game. Then they shut Gonzaga down in the second half. Um, they're, uh, 
Their team depth is better, and they're going to be very dangerous in the Final Four. They're not going to be pretty to watch, as I said, but they're, they're a team that could, like, that would be a really weird moment if Texas Tech is lifting the championship trophy on Monday night. Uh, but with Chris Pierre Jr., what they're doing, there's no reason um, with these teams that they're that's in the Final Four. You know, Virginia Tech's not going to, I mean, sorry, Virginia's not going to blow them out. Uh, Auburn obviously has its flaws. Michigan State is not that deep. Like, Texas Tech can win this tournament. I think that would be really crazy just thinking about how low their expectations were entering the year and where they have ended up right now uh, in Minneapolis. Yeah, the offensive turnaround has been huge for them. Davide Moretti has been a really efficient player. Um, Jared Culver reminds me a lot of Evan Turner. Um, both are good uh, facilitators. Uh, they take a lot of mid-range shots, uh, and they take a huge burden on themselves. Evan Turner, one of the more underrated college basketball players, was I think he might have been one player of the year in 2011. Um, and uh, the Texas Tech offensive turnaround has been because other players like Davide Moretti stepped up late in the season to help. He was uh, second in the Big 12 play in, in true shooting percentage, and he made half his threes since the start of Big 12 season. Uh, let's move on to the team, the big story, really, in the Final Four, and that's Virginia. Uh, Tony Bennett's 10th season at Virginia, his sixth straight season in the top 10 in Ken Palm, and fifth in the top six in that stretch. Um, defense has not ranked worse than seventh, but his tempo has ranked 345th or slower, which is, depending on the year, how many teams there are, it's, it's been in the bottom 10 the last uh, six years, or seven years, rather. Um, of course, Virginia is known for being great in the regular season and not great in the NCAA tournament. Starting in 2014, they were a four seed uh, that lost in the Sweet 16 to Michigan State, a Michigan State team that then lost to UConn. And won the national title, the worst ever national champion in college basketball history, 2014 <laughs> UConn, uh, at, at, the gar- at the Garden. Uh, 2015, they were two seed. They lost Michigan State again. That was the last Michigan State team to go to the Final Four, as we mentioned. That was, I think, in Syracuse. Um, 2016, they were the number one seed, which uh, and they made the lead eight and had a 15-point lead in the second half against Syracuse and blew that lead um, in what was a, a complete meltdown. A lot of turnovers on the stretch there. 2017, they were a five seed. In the second round, they lost by 26 to Florida. So another, I mean, Florida was pretty good that year, but that was a big defeat. And they saw three of their best, well, two of their best players, uh, Mario Shayak and Darius Thompson transfer along with Jared Reuter, who was, you know, an interesting big man, but not a great player. And they weren't even ranked entering the 2017-2018 season. And then 2018, they were the best team in the country. Um, you know, Villanova and Virginia went back and forth as the best team, but Virginia finished stronger because Villanova had a couple injuries. They were 31-2. and two. They were much better after Kyle Guy and DeAndre Hunter and Ty Jerome stepped up. And then uh, they lost to UMBC by 20. Became the first ever number one seed to do so. At least they got to close. Yeah. And <laughs> so they ended the season with um, knowing that they were going to be good. Like, I had no doubt. I think I picked them to win the ACC. I, you might have picked them as well. I mean, you might have picked North Carolina. But either way... Um, like people like Duke, but Virginia, to, to me, was clearly the team that was going to win the ACC, and they did. But no one cares. Um, we talked about this with the, the would-be assassin earlier in the year. Like, basically, the whole season, all that matters is getting the Final Four. All that matters. Nothing else matters. And winning, being the best team in the country in Camp Palm again, winning the ACC championship again in the regular season, doesn't matter. Um, especially when their only losses in the regular season were to Duke, two of them. Um, so people thought, same old Virginia, they're really good for a while, but they run up against the team and they lose their cool and they lose because they play too slow and that doesn't work in March. And then they fell behind uh, Gardner-Webb by 14 in the, uh, in the first round and they were, of course, basically 
uh, done and dusted against Purdue before the miracle shot. But now here they are in their first Final Four since 1984 um, and deserve it. You know, you may say there are many times or at least many times against Purdue where you felt like they were going to lose and should have lost. But this is a deserving team. Uh, really, Virginia, North Carolina and um, Villanova have been clearly the best teams of the last four years. Um, and it's only fitting that um, that Virginia get to be in a number one seed three times in four years makes the final four. They are the favorite. Um, I would say a fairly narrow favorite, uh, slightly bigger favorite because they play Auburn first, but uh, the favorite to win the NCAA title. Yeah, I'm very happy for Tony Bennett. And as I've said on this podcast, like he's everyone has a problem until they make the Final Four or win the title. It's happened to a lot of coaches, and it could happen to Tony Bennett. He's finally made the Final Four. Unlike Mark Few a couple years ago, he showed how much it meant to him. Uh, he hugging his father, uh, the way he was, the way he held the net as he snipped it down. You could tell the uh, just how much it meant to him, and it's tough not to feel happy for him. Um, this is a team that's been through a lot, and they had a really good regular season, and they were really good. And if it were any other team, they would have been super hyped up. And if it were, but for Virginia, because of their history, and they and because they lost to Duke twice, as you mentioned, it's just a tough, uh, tough slog. And there's no real way to have a satisfying season for Virginia if you make the Final Four. Now, obviously, now that they're there, I hope that they realize how close they are and that they should they have a very good chance to win the national title and that they shouldn't just be satisfied with the Final Four, which is tough, just the way that they got there. But at the same time, um, this season is going to be still remembered fondly in Virginia, but they have a real chance to like re- to take the next step and just go and just like, we'll go from Tony Bennett, like perennial underachiever, to you know borderline Hall of Fame coach in the span of like six days or whatever it is, yeah. eight days. You think of the coaches that kind of got the monkey off their back by uh, going to the Final Four. You know, I think of uh, Mark Few and Bill Self are the first two names that come up uh, yeah. for me. Um, Bill Self won the title that time. Mark Few went to the championship. Um, uh, is there any other coaches stick out to you? I'm trying to think. Uh, honestly, coaches that have won the title, like you would Roy Williams and I think of Lou yeah. Olson winning the title. But to make the final four and get the monkey off their back like this, that's a tough one. Because I think, yeah, because Bill Self had some regional final problems as well. I'm trying to think who else might have done that. But I think, yeah, we think we covered them. Those are, it's um, tough. I think Jim Calhoun did a little bit in 1999. He had been so close. He'd been to the right. lead eight in 98. He'd been to the lead eight in 89 and also had that really good team in 96 that was the number one seed that didn't make it. Um, so I think Jim Calhoun had a bit of that. Um, I'm looking at some recent Final Fours to see if there were other like monkey off their back coaches. Frank Martin. Uh, Frank Martin, <laughs> you think? <laughs> um, yeah, Lon Kruger made it, uh, but he already made it with Florida. Um, I mean, it feels like John Calipari winning national title was one, but right. um, that's still a title though. Yeah. Yeah, that's different than just making the Final Four. Um, yeah, those are the ones that stick out. Um, yeah, they had the really long wait to get there. I guess Gary Williams, uh, I don't think people really thought of him that way, but when he made it in 2001 for the first time uh, in a long time, I, it doesn't, Rick Majerus maybe, but that's more of, it was more of a career, I feel like for Gary Williams and Rick Majerus was more of like a career achievement type thing rather than like a monkey off the back. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you know, we're excited for these games, um, even though maybe it's not the buzz and the juice that, that some of the national media would have hoped for and the, and the NBA lovers. Clearly, um, either Kentucky or UNC making it, along with Gonzaga and um, Duke 
as you, I think you mentioned earlier, like that would have been the more buzzy one, and it would have brought some more like love hateness. Like if you have Duke and Kentucky in a Final Four, there's going to be a lot of um, like people to root against. But these are like fair. This still rings as root against. We talked about Michigan State, some of their scandals, Auburn, some of their scandals, um, and certainly Chris Beard coaching under Bob Knight. I'm sure a lot of people who hate Bob Knight probably don't like Chris Beard. Um, and then you know UVA plays slow, which I guess is the most offensive thing you can say about UVA. Um, but um, let's look at these two games. The first game on Saturday is Virginia-Auburn, a battle of the blue and orange teams. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And then the second game uh, will be Michigan State versus Texas Tech. Uh, you and I are going to watch these games together. Um, yeah. I was at the retreat on Friday night and talking to one of my pastors about how I've given up alcohol for Lent. And, of course, this is still Lent on Saturday. And he said, you know – they intentionally created feast days during Lent so that you could break your fast um, for certain days in Lent. Um, and I mentioned to Teresa, I said, you know, well, what about next Saturday? The final four is surely a, a Lenten feast day. And she was very skeptical of that. Uh, so you, you, maybe you, you need to pray for, for me over the next few days <laughs> that uh, Teresa will not be very skeptical about uh, having a alcoholic feast day on Saturday when we watch the final four tomorrow, but it's uh, on Saturday, but looking forward to it. This first game, Auburn, Fort Virginia, we've talked about these teams at a lot. Some would say ad nauseum. I think if you're nauseated right now, you probably stop listening. Um, but, uh, what do you think of Virginia? Anything more to say about Virginia Auburn? Uh, I do not think that Virginia is the type of team to fall prey to Auburn. Uh, they don't turn the ball over that much. They're 14.7%, which is 11th in the country. Uh, that is not something that's going to be easy to exploit um, for Virginia and one thing Virginia for sorry for Auburn and one thing also that Virginia does very well is limits three-point attempts and three-point percentage. So you look at Virginia, their opponents shoot just 41.9% uh, of their shots from three, which is 286 in the country. And they make just 28.7 of them, which is third in the country. So what are Auburn's two best strengths? Bombing it from three and forcing you to turn it over. And it's just a bad matchup for Auburn in that regard. I mean, Virginia's mm -hmm. a bad matchup for everybody because they're the number one ranked team, Ken Palm in the country, their best team left. But it just doesn't seem like their vulnerabilities match up with uh, Auburn's strengths. So I fear uh, that Auburn's going to have to like, really shoot well and just you know really push the tempo to get good looks in transition uh, to... Uh, they're because they're not going to get anything in the half court set. Yeah, I think the on on the con the other hand, I think that's all true, and I am kind of leaning towards Virginia winning this game. You know what I would call Virginia comfortably, like by eight to fourteen points. Um, but some of Auburn's weaknesses are not well exploited by Virginia either. So that's like the balance. Like Virginia is a not a he's not they're not a bad but they're not especially great offensive rebounding team and Auburn's terrible on defensive glass which is what I thought was going to be a, an Achilles heel against North Carolina turn out not to matter Auburn fouls a lot because of all the steals they go for but Virginia doesn't really go the foul line very much or force the issue there um, I I do think that Auburn's lack of they, they're deeper probably than either Michigan the Michigan State is and deeper than probably Kentucky or Duke were. But Virginia is quite deep in their ability to get, you know, even Braxton Key hasn't really shown out yet in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, they, they have a very solid, like, uh, at least a seven-man rotation, plus Jay Huff could play, although against a small team like Virginia, like Auburn, I'm not sure he will. Um, 
I, I think a guy like DeAndre Hunter is going to have a field day against Auburn. And I think if Tony uh, Bennett plays him. Yes, well, I got it. Too no, soon? I, 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 I mean, that honestly would have been. Yeah, I know. It's mind boggling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, th- I think this, this, we said it against Kentucky, uh, or we didn't say, we didn't have a podcast, but we would have said it against Kentucky. We probably would have said it against North Carolina, whatever it is. They're going to have to make threes. And, you know, Virginia does give up threes. They just give up difficult threes. And so you need to make those difficult threes like Carson Edwards was. Um, we also saw that against a team like Duke, they gave up some open threes intentionally, and Duke made them. I don't think that'll be the case against Auburn. They're going to try to funnel Auburn into the middle of the defense where they have uh, Diakite and Jack Salt and Adder Hunter to like deflect uh, deflect the ball and, knock, and block shots. Um but, uh, I mean, they, they did give up 18 threes to Syracuse. Uh, they hit 18 threes against Syracuse. Well, 18 for 25. That's really good. Yeah. Um, they, they have given up 14, 9, 8, and 9 threes the last four games in the NCAA tournament. So they give up some threes in this tournament, even if they didn't during the regular season. So. Yeah, well, certainly, yeah, Purdue made their threes for sure. Yeah. So we both think Virginia's going to win. Is that what it comes down to? Yeah, now the uh, Ken Palm line in this game, it says it's going to be a 70 to 64 finish i like uh virginia to cover that uh, i do too yeah. I'll, I'll take the, i'll lay the points um even though virginia didn't cover against oregon they did actually backdoor cover against uh purdue, purdue in overtime with kihei clark's free throws to in the final and seconds purdue decided not to shoot the ball at the end of the game which i'm sure yeah agonized some people but not me yeah the yeah. brett musburger's friends were in, in the <laughs> desert were, yeah. uh, were upset so I well, we both like Virginia to cover. Uh, I, I think there is a chance this could be like an utter blowout, like a like an eighteen to twenty two point game. Um, it, I mean, we're thinking about Final Four blowouts. Do you think of like Villanova, Oregon? I don't think it's, uh, Villanova, Oklahoma. It's not gonna be like that. Villanova, but, um, Kansas. Yeah. Villanova in general playing. Yeah, Villanova <laughs> the final semifinal scored about a about I think like I'll look it up as we talk about the second game. I think they scored like a hundred some points in the first two halves, almost of the last two national semifinals. But well, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it, it. Well, I think we transitioned to the other game as we try to give people back their some of their time. Um, yeah. We're only an hour and forty five minute hour and forty minutes in. Um, Texas Tech. Some you could argue is like to defense what Villanova last year was to offense. I maintain that Villanova is the best offensive team that I maybe have ever seen, and Texas Tech may be. According to I think the just the uh, efficiency rating in Ken Palm, it may be the best defensive team in the Ken Palm era, and so perhaps Texas Tech is so good on defense that it won't even matter who they're playing, and they'll end up winning the national title because of their defense. Um, they play Michigan State again, a team that is unlike Gonzaga and um, maybe not a dominant either physical team or a dominant talent team, but they are. Top eight in offense and defense, where Texas Tech's offense obviously is not as good. Uh, Michigan State does turn the ball over a lot, and even though Texas and Texas Tech, um, sorry, Michigan State turns the ball over and they don't force turnovers. Texas Tech is eleventh in forcing turnovers. Michigan State's one seventy sixth in committing turnovers. Um, so I actually, right now, the Ken Palm spread is what Michigan State minus one. Yeah. I'm taking Texas Tech to win straight up uh, and go to the national championship game to play Virginia. So my question is, uh, Michigan State's defense, I think a little overlooked. Like I think we overlooked it a little in our talking about the Duke-Michigan State game. I think it's very solid. It's eighth in the country in efficiency. 
I think, can they really get Texas Tech to play one of those kind of dumpster fires of games that they played uh, in mid-February? That is, to me, the question. Can they junk it up? And are they deep enough also, Michigan State? Because Texas Tech, let's face it, it's not too easy to play Texas Tech when you're playing basically six guys. And so if you're going to be... If you're going to have to work for every basket, how is that going to affect you as this game goes on? Um, so we'll see. I think that this this game is very close. I actually mm-hmm. like Michigan State to win. I think mm-hmm. uh, they'll be a little they'll be poised, they'll be fine, and I think that their offense, just being you know being having some go-to guys on offense, multiple go-to guys on offense will help them. Uh, but I would not be surprised by any. Uh, any outcome of this game, I just, I just think this game will, this game will not be high scoring. Neither game will be high scoring. No game at the Final Four will be high scoring. Uh, no game at the Final Four will be, uh, especially. Uh, Does anyone break eighty points in the Final Four in any of the three games? Uh, six I think. I say no. Six potential. No? I say no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just this this game features two of the top four players in the Ken Palm Player of the Year standings. Jerry Culver right now is number one. Cassius Winston is number four. Uh, these two guys have kind of been in parallel uh, parallel paths in my mind as being players who have taken a huge load of, of offense on teams that uh, have allowed their surrounding cast to basically get easy shots. Uh, Michigan State for the second straight year is number one in percentage of their field goals that are assisted on, and that's mainly because of Cassius Winston, also the system they play, um, a lot of motion. Um, and so I think Cassius Winston, if there is a player who is made to kind of carve up Texas Tech's defense. It's a player who can get into the middle and then find skip passes who are that are open. Can Michigan State hit those shots when they get them? And will Cassius Winston, at his size, at just 6'1 listed, be big enough to find those creases? Now, I, I think the latter is probably yes, because he's done it all year. Um, and he's I think he's number one in the country in assist rate, number two in the country in assist rate. I think maybe John Morant was higher. Um, but... Texas Tech runs out um, a starting lineup of 6'2", 6'3", um, and then Culver might be a guy who's going to muck it up at 6'6". Um, so they have some length, um, and I, 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 I think it'll be... Oh, yeah, I'm picking, I'm, picking Michigan, I'm picking Texas Tech, so there it is. Yeah. I'm just going through, Jared Culver right now is the Ken Palm Player of the Year winner. I'm going back through Ken Palm, the only two players since... T- there are only three players since 2013 have a higher Ken Palm score uh, than he does since the 2013 season. Do you want to end this podcast on a little trivia question of who those three players are? Well, I was at 27 in 2018. I was looking at that already. So it's not any 27 or 2018 yeah. players. Yeah. Russ Smith, is that one of them? Russ Smith is 2.636, which is crazy. 2013, yep. Uh, There's another player from that year who was ahead of Jared Culver. There's 2013... Uh, ahead of Jarrett Culver in 2013. Okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to that one. So it's either from 2014, 2015, or 2016. Correct. Um, I'm gonna go with Frank Kaminsky. Yep, 2.794 yes. in 2015. Oh, can I end this with uh, with getting Reaper the other three. player from 2013? Yeah. So 2013 season, you had. Um, uh, you had the point guard. You had uh, Trey Burke. I don't yeah. think it's Trey Burke though. Um, you had who else was good that year? Uh, the final four is Louisville, Syracuse, Michigan, and who's the other final four team that year? Wow, this is embarrassing. Twenty thirteen. Yeah, Louisville, Michigan, Syracuse, 
uh, Wichita State, right? Yes. <sighs> but that doesn't help me, I don't think. Florida? Which of the elite was Florida good that year? Oh, man. Um, you may have mentioned his name already. Let's just put is it, it Trey Burke? It is Trey Burke, yes. Oh, uh, okay. Ah, yeah. dang. Just gone again. Yeah. Okay, anyway. so you have Virginia Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State, of course, has beaten Virginia twice in the NCAA tournament in this Tony Bennett era. And then I have uh, Virginia Tech, Virginia versus Texas Tech, which is aesthetically probably one of the least appealing matchups <laughs> in the history of the, of the championship. But it will uh, not be, no matter what happens, no matter what happens Monday night, who knows how things will play out. We will get a better game than 2011 Butler, Connecticut. I feel so confident. That's the most confident <laughs> prediction I've, never, I've ever made on this podcast. No game will be worse than that game, which was the worst college basketball game of all time. So Texas Tech, Virginia, and Michigan State, Virginia. Who do you have winning uh, your have Michigan Virginia, State? Virginia, Tony back? Bennett. It's going to be, uh, be a win for the ages, and we can finally shut up the haters. Yeah. Uh, part of me thinks Texas Tech's going to win, but I'm rooting for Virginia, so I'm just going to pick them. Um, we'll both be rooting for Virginia next Monday night if they can get by Auburn. Uh, it's also a, a good hedge against the fact that the other game is definitely a toss-up, so a better chance of having a, a, yeah. a dog to root for in the final. That's smart. Um, but, yeah, I do think that it's going to be tough for Virginia to prepare for Texas Tech. I'm sure they'll do some advanced preparation because they know Michigan State pretty well. We know what they're doing. Uh, they don't have to prepare too much in advance for Michigan State. Um, but, yeah, I think it'll be a, a, probably a fun Final Four. It won't be as good as the Elite Eight. Um Oh, well, yeah, and it doesn't have kind of the branding. It's it's kind of a college basketball lover's Final Four. This is not the one yeah. that you bring your your friends in to really appreciate and love college basketball. No, yeah. yeah, it's not a name brand Final Four, but it will be an entertaining Final Four. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's the wrong teams, but the right sport, and I think we'll have some good games. And and tweet at New York Tree to let her have me have a beer on Saturday night. Yeah, That's it's almost more important for me than it is for Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, uh, again, thank you for listening this far. If you got this far, doublebonuspod.com, at doublebonuspod on Twitter, doublebonuspod at gmail.com to email us. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music. Uh, and enjoy the Final Four, Minneapolis, um, where hopefully it'll be uh, warmer than it is right now in New York, where today when I woke up it was uh, 34 degrees and 15 mile hour winds on April 1st. Yeah, happy spring. Happy spring. Happy baseball season. Happy Final Four. Um, happy CBI. Best of three final. <laughs> uh, roar, Blue Demon, Roar, whatever. And uh, we'll see you next week after we have a national champ. Good night. Needed a defensive rebound. It was Grady Eifert who secured it. Two-point game. Roar. Short. Back top. The Akite. A race for it. Into the hands of Clark. Got a chance to win it here. Up the front, it's the Akita for the win!